Amen. Please be seated. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, the last few verses. Isaiah 53, the last three verses, will be our focus today. Now, when I started Isaiah 53, I forecasted three sermons. We're at five, um, and we have one more after this. Uh, I decided that about 32 minutes ago. When I looked at my last point and couldn't figure out a way, I know how long my notes are and how long that generally goes, and it, the math did not work out for you to get out in a timely manner if I would finish that third, ver- that third, that third uh, point. And so Elder Bob Albright convinced me this morning to let the Holy Spirit decide what I should do sermon-wise. So we're coming back after Easter to look at the intercession of Jesus, which works perfectly because we celebrate his resurrection, and then he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us, and that's the last verse of Isaiah 53. So after Easter Sunday, we will return to finish this chapter, Lord willing. It is fitting that we find ourselves on Isaiah 53 here on Palm Sunday. I assure you, um, I don't make these kinds of plans. We just pick books to preach through. I started Isaiah two years ago, so... uh, the Lord has just worked out that we would come to this place in the build-up to Easter Sunday, and here it is, Palm Sunday, and we're looking at the last section of these verses. Uh, this passage that we are studying was written 700 years before uh, the occasion that we remember today, Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. The thing that he accomplishes when he goes to Jerusalem, and we think of especially a Good Friday is forecasted here 700 years before by a prophet who knew nothing of Roman crucifixion or execution. None of these details could have been guessed and then fulfilled like they were apart from God's divine work and revealing the true servant of Jehovah to be Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. So it's in that light that we come to this text, probably the climax of Christological revelation in the Old Testament. Uh, here, Isaiah 52 and 53. So I will once again read to begin our study this morning, our look at this sacred text, uh, starting at Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is the beginning of the fourth servant song, the fourth time where the prophet predicts and foresees and foreshadows the coming Messiah. This is the most vivid of the four, the climactic one. I'll start at verse 13 of Isaiah 52. This is the Lord's God-breathed word. Therefore, it is also without error, totally trustworthy, infallible, and authoritative. Hear God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to become accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we have been reading these blessed words of the fourth servant song for five weeks now, and they impact us every time. Lord Jesus, that you would offer yourself to save us from our sins and give us standing as righteous children of God. This overwhelms us. As the author of Hebrews wrote, so I pray, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Indeed, salvation through your perfect finished work is great, Lord Jesus. We give you praise on this Palm Sunday. Please deepen our love for Christ by once again centering us on his substitutionary sacrifice for us. In Christ's name. Amen. You can probably see by now that we could have taken 10 sermons to walk through all that is in Isaiah 53. There are so many layers. But we come almost to the conclusion with these verses, 10, 11, and 12. It's almost like the prophet Isaiah was standing at Golgotha when Christ died and wrote this, yet We know he lived 700 years before Jesus. Really, it's more like Isaiah was one of the disciples who became apostles. Because Isaiah 53, 52 and 53, allude to more than just his death. It alludes to a bit of his active obedience on our behalf. That he was innocent. uh, That he did not sin. 
It alludes to the way he was oppressed while he was in his earthly ministry. And then, of course, in the last week of passion, which starts today as our remembrance goes. It also alludes to the way he was judged uh, by courts, human courts, the Jewish court and the Roman court. It alludes to the nature of his death down to the details that, again, would have been foreign to someone writing in 700 B.C. regarding a Roman crucifixion. It alludes to why he died, the purposes of it. It connects with the things that Jesus taught while he was on earth. It connects to even his death, his burial, even where he was buried and by whom. And then it speaks of, alludes to his prolonged days. He was cut off from the land of the living, but then his days are prolonged, his resurrection. And finally, his intercession, what he does in an ongoing basis right now. I mean, it's like an apostle wrote this, yet it's 700. And the reason is the same spirit of prophecy, the same spirit of God worked in the prophets and worked in the apostles and works in you and works in us to understand this word and to believe. It was, we see, in these last three verses, kind of as a climax to what's been said. It's clearly the pleasure of the servant, Jesus, It's the pleasure of the servant. Not just this begrudging duty. It's the pleasure of the servant to fulfill the very clear will of God. And it was the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross and make payment for our sins. The Father gives and the Son accepts with delight for us and for his glory ultimately. Let's look at the verses. They are loaded. Verse 10 we see clearly the will of God to make Jesus our substitute. This was the plan of God, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. There are verses that are difficult to interpret. This is not one. This is very clear, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So God willed that Christ would be punished like this in our stead. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Some of the most shocking verses in Scripture are right here. Phrases. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. All the anguish of the son was commissioned by the father, according to Scripture. All the sorrows of the son were appointed by the Father. All the grief of the Son in paying for sins that he did not commit were decided by the Father. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And the words of verse 10 should weigh heavy on all of our ears. That's why we sang the hymn uh, just prior. Ah, holy Jesus. How we have offended him. Because we know the penalty that the Son bears, commissioned by the Father, It's not because of what the Son has done. It's because of what we have done, laid on him. He bore our load of sin. Our iniquity was what was laid on him. You know, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, have you thought of this vivid picture? He's sitting on a beast of burden. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. The burden of our sin on him And a beast of burden carries him to his sacrificial day. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
Who would have known before this declaration in Isaiah 53 the nature of Jesus' sacrifice? Uh, there's some allusions, no doubt. In Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, talking to the devil, and you shall bruise his heel. The picture is of one stepping on a snake on the head. That's how you'd kill it, but it bites the heel as you crush it. So Jesus' work on the cross crushes Satan in his work, but he gets bit on the heel, and there's pain with that. So there's some indication that what it will take for the second Adam to undo what the first Adam did, it will take pain. We know that much. In Genesis, Abraham was given a glimpse of the costly substitution when the ram was put in place of his son to be sacrificed. So there's sacrifice alluded to for sure. But the Israelites were pretty encumbered with their situation. They wanted liberation from whoever was oppressing them, the here and the now. Not so much thinking about the greater slavery we have, which is to sin and to death and to hell. The book of Exodus makes clearer as the Israelites are freed from Egyptian control by the covering of the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Again, sacrifice is alluded to, no doubt, but the details, we don't have them until we get to Isaiah. Even the intricate sacrificial code of Leviticus, cumbersome and costly, shows the burden of paying for sins, but it's not as clear as what we have in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. In fact, if you back up in the text, all this revealing, verse 14 of chapter 52, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. Wait a minute, this is our Messiah, the the liberator, the king? Yes, this is the one who will liberate you in a way that's greater than any other liberation the earth has ever known. But he will be marred beyond human semblance in the process of paying for our liberation. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 53, verse 3. Verse 5 of 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God willed for the Son to provide satisfaction for our sins. God willed what is necessary, what was necessary for the removal of guilt and the acceptance as adopted sons and daughters for us. God was willing to pay his son as the price for our redemption and adoption. God willed what was required to save a people for himself through the work of the servant. This is why in the book of Acts chapter 2, this opening salvo after Christ has been resurrected and ascends into heaven, the apostles say, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Later, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And notice what it says in the, last, in the middle part of verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus didn't just make a bodily sacrifice. He made a sacrifice as a human, the God-man, whose body and soul. 
At the fall of man, when Adam and Eve fell, their souls died immediately, and their bodies slowly followed suit. You will surely die. That's what it meant. So when Jesus dies, his soul makes an offering for guilt. The Messiah makes a total offering, soul included, to make reparation for our sins. When his soul makes an offering for our guilt, there are burnt offerings, there are peace offerings, there are meat offerings, there are trespass offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. I like what Dalich says about this phrase in verse 10. The self-sacrifice of the servant of Jehovah may be presented under all these points of view. He's talking about all the different kinds of sacrifices listed in Leviticus in particular. It is the complete antitype, the truth, the object, and the end of all sacrifices. It was the will of the Lord that the servant make payment. The church would be purchased or redeemed and built by the work of the servant according to God's plan. Now, it was the will of the Father to appoint the Son to make payment. But I want you to see this because this doctrine continually comes under attack in every age. This doctrine of his substitutionary penal substitution, his taking penalty. But please understand that we should not take it with human emotion, but rather let's look to Jesus' response to the Father's mission. That's where we should form our opinion. What is Christ's opinion of what the Father has granted? Well, we see in verse 10 and 11 very clearly that the Son wasn't begrudging about this mission. The Son understood and accepted and delighted in the plan of God. Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. He sees that the benefit of what he does will promote the glory of God, which is the ultimate purpose of this whole redemption thing. And so when he sees this, that his offspring will be many, many will be saved because of this work. And his days will be prolonged. God will raise him from the dead and exalt him. He will have this as the result. These are the fruits of his sacrifice. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He recognizes what it will accomplish, what it will mean. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He knows what the Father's will is. He knows what the mission is. He knows what is required. He sees what it will accomplish, and he accepts it. And he does it with delight because it's the will of the Father. And God prospers him for his obedience even unto death. Jesus is not begrudging the Father for the mission. Jesus delights in what the Father's will is because the Father and the Son are one in will. And they understand what it will take to bring this glory and redeem his people. You know, there's regularly attacks on this doctrine, and it's because people think they've become enlightened, and this is so barbaric that the Father would punish the Son for sins he didn't commit for us. God, he could just forgive. He doesn't need to do that. But that's not true, not God. God is 100% just, 100% righteous. He doesn't just blow off sin, or he would not be righteous or just. So someone has to make payment in our stead for this. That's by God's design. That's not some kind of cosmic child abuse, like some would say. In fact, I read a, a recent article by a continually disappointing author where he portrays God as some irrational father venting his anger on his innocent son. One uh, excellent reviewer who I trust and know said about this author talking about Jesus' penal substitution. He damns the traditional doctrine of penal substitution by constantly referring uh, to it as pagan and capricious. He suggests that 
we rescue this substitution from its pagan captivity. And you'll hear this from people who call themselves Christians. Yes, it's true that Christ is innocent. But there was nothing arbitrary or abstract about the arrangement between he and the Father. The Father says, it is my will to crush the Son as the substitute for my people for the purpose of the glorifying of the Son and the glorifying of the Godhead and the redemption of my people. And the Son says, I accept this mission and will do the will of the Father. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see the off, his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus knows the plan of God as he goes into it. Jesus sees what will be accomplished by knowing what will be accomplished, he is steadfast in accepting God's will. The Son delights in the will of the Father. The Son nowhere protested. In fact, in preparation for the cross, in a pivotal talk with the disciples, even though they didn't get it when he said it. In John 6, he says to his disciples, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Back to our text. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Later, In John 14, just to show you this is not a fringe teaching of Scripture. John 14, talking again to his disciples. The majority of his ministry on earth was preparing his disciples to carry on his work after he died and rose again and ascended. But I don't think they laid hold of who Christ was fully until after he rose again. But in preparation, John 14, right before he's telling them about, in my Father's house there are many mansions, I am going to prepare a place. He's talking about leaving them in death, and they don't like what he's saying. Listen to what Jesus says to show you how he he takes from the Father, the Father's will, and then carries it out. He says in John 14, 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The Son was not uh, abused by the Father. The Son took the punishment that should have come to us upon himself, willingly and with delight, so that the world would know that Christ is the Savior and that God is our Father, and we can only be right with him through Jesus. What does the sacrifice accomplish? Offspring. Children of God, prolonged days, satisfaction, justification for many, sins born, spiritual inheritance of souls. Jesus understands the will and the mission of the Father for him. He accepts God's will. He sees the fruit of doing God's will and agrees. I think with regard to the penal substitution of Christ and that doctrine and the attack it comes under almost every age, especially today, I think it is fair to say that a minimizing or a denial of the biblical doctrine of Christ's penal substitution 
it's not an advancement in man's understanding of God's love at all. It's a potentially damning misunderstanding of God's perfect justice and righteousness. The ruinous nature of man's sin and rebellion and what it ultimately costs Christ to provide atonement. There was perfect agreement between the Father and the Son about what was required for the salvation of man and the glory of God and salvation. And we see the reward that comes to the Son. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It echoes what Paul says was given to the Father, therefore, or given to the Son after his death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus delighted in fulfilling the Father's plan. Finally, you see in verse 11 and verse 12 something that is touched upon throughout this wonderful chapter. Jesus the servant accomplishing our redemption and continuing with intercession. I'll save the intercession portion for the week after Easter. But for now, consider the redemption that has been accomplished as it's revealed once again in these verses. There's a clear acknowledgement from the Son about what the mission of the Father would accomplish. Redemption. What is included in redemption, according to these verses? Now, when we speak of Jesus redeeming or Jesus the Redeemer, there are multiple facets. This passage addresses a few of them. Two in particular I want you to see. Satisfaction or atonement and justification. Satisfaction or justification. These two are important. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. So Jesus himself will approve of that which comes from his sacrifice. He'll have a satisfaction. But there's a greater satisfaction. That's the satisfaction of Jesus or God's righteous requirements. This is alluded to in the last part of verse 11. He shall bear their iniquities. Again, connecting to his payment for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The peace that we gain is because of the chastisement that he endured. You know, there's a, another well-meaning common misconception. It's well-meaning, for sure, with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not something that separates us as Christians. Uh, it does to the degree that we disagree, but we're in fellowship in Christ. But there are some who will say that Christ, he, his death, he just died for everybody, and so then it's up to people to apply the work of Jesus that's up there in heaven somewhere or his blood is in some kind of bank, and I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful way, but just in the sense that he accomplishes. When he says it is finished, the death is done. Now people need to appropriate it, and it's kind of up to them. That does not align well with the particular focus that you read in Scripture about what Jesus did. Jesus had a clear picture about what he was accomplishing. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't arbitrary. He wasn't just making the opportunity available. He was doing something very particular. Very definite. That's what you have here displayed. And look at what I mean by this. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make, notice what it says, 
many to be accounted righteous. It's an important word. Words matter here. And he shall bear their iniquities. Whose iniquities? The many. So the iniquities he's bearing are the many. Not the all, but the many. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And then the last part. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Part of the the delight of the Savior was the absolute certainty of success. His redemption was pointed. It was particular. It was limited to those the Father had appointed. Now, we don't know who those people are. It says anyone who believes in the finished work of Christ is saved. Absolutely true. But between the Father and the Son, there was clarity about the mission. This is why he says in John 6, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So the Father has given him some, not all, he's given him some. John chapter 10, Jesus gives it in most vivid detail. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Later, after he gives this good shepherd mini-sermon, the text says in John 10, 22, and at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said to him, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father am one. When when Jesus goes to the cross, he's taking the sins of his people and paying for them all. None are lost for whom the Son dies. Not one bit of failure is connected to the finished work of Christ. Complete success. This is why Matthew, in introducing chapter 1, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. After Jesus took bread, blessing it and broke it and gave it to his disciples, he said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink all of it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Justification. Jesus has purchased our justification, and it's alluded to here in a beautiful phrase, verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus' work on the cross justifies us. How? Takes away our sin and gives to us his righteousness. That's how we're made right with God. When you believe on the finished work of Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, but you are granted Christ's righteousness in a legal sense. So that when God looks at you, you're accounted as righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus. It's a legal term. Credited to you as righteousness. 
Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. It's always been this way. We must believe in the finished work of God's servant on our behalf to take away our sins and receive his righteousness. And that's what justification is. And out of his knowledge, verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. Our confession or our catechism says it so wonderfully. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. I was quizzing my kids yesterday in the car. One of my sons said, are we saved by faith? It's a trick question because good reformed people say, well, yes. Okay, technically no. Don't freak now. We are saved by the finished work of Christ. That work is applied to us by faith alone. There's a difference. And, and listen to what Paul says. For by grace you've been saved. So you've been saved by grace. That's God's unmerited favor to people who deserve wrath. Well, how? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So nobody can boast. You follow? So it's the finished work of Christ. That's the basis for your salvation. That's the foundation for your redemption. That's the reason you're right with God, his finished work. And his finished work includes his life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, which proves God accepts that righteous work. That's the basis for your justification. And the way you lay hold of it is believe on it. Rest upon it. I can never say this too many times. It's his finished work. It's not your faith that saves you. It's his finished work, and the instrument is faith that lays hold of it. So much more I could say here. Pastor, are you worried that if you keep preaching this message, all God, all God, all God, man does it, the man's going to go out and sin. He's going to sin because it doesn't matter what he does, right? God's paid for it. No. You know what? In fact, the Apostle Paul forecasts an exact answer. And I would say someone who really says that probably really hasn't laid hold of what has been done for them as spelled out in Isaiah 53. If you really think, if your response to Isaiah 53 is, well, I can go do whatever I want, you have not read Isaiah 53 very well, if you are a Christian at all. Because what this does is transform a person. It completely transforms. We see what God has done and what he has given us. And so Paul, after he lays out this doctrine in the first five chapters of Romans, and I'll close with this, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He knows exactly what someone might ask when he preaches this message of grace. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The way you'll walk in newness of life is not by me beating you down with guilt about your sin. The way you'll walk in newness of life is when you grasp the finished work of Christ as your basis for redemption. Then you will walk in newness of life, and I'm sure of that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would transform us by knowledge of the gospel, the finished work of Christ, accepted by you on our behalf, O Father, and we know it's true because you raised him from the dead. 
Lord, I pray that you would encourage every believer here to obey what you have given us, not to earn their salvation, but as ones who have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless they live. Yet not them, but Christ lives in them. Pray this in his name. Amen.